Welcome to the Susquehanna County Historical Society podcast, Do You Remember When? Stories of Susquehanna County. In this session, I'll take you back to a chilly January 1921 to learn how Susquehanna County residents lived, worked, worshipped, and play. Before we proceed to the Susquehanna newspapers, we often have questions about the types of resources that we have available at the Historical Society. We have many. Among them are most of the Susquehanna County newspapers back to 1816 on microfilm, birth, marriage, and death announcements indexed, family genealogy books and files, we have tons, township tax records to 1850 on microfilm, cemetery stone transcriptions, township maps, DAR and Mayflower books, the Barber Collection of of Connecticut Town Vital Records, some church and cemetery records, journals, scrapbooks, and diaries, information on schools, civil, civic organizations, railroads, and other items. We have some limited wills, deeds, and delayed, delayed birth records. We might recommend you visit the courthouse for those. And histories of neighboring counties and states, and tons more. While we might not always have what you're looking for, we hope that you'll stop by or to visit our website for out-of-town researchers to see how our staff can help you. Our services, hours, and fees are on the website. Make sure you stay tuned for a research tip near the end of the podcast. January 1921. It was winter in Susquehanna County. Christmas and New Year's had passed and the residents struggled with keeping safe and warm. Not everything was quiet, though, as good folks planned improvements in events in the county, And then there were the thugs. There was plenty of excitement on Public Avenue on Monday night. About 11.45 o'clock, a man entered Patrick's pool room and asked for a pail of water for his car, which he obtained. Chief of Police Tingley had seen the car come into town, drive around by the Baptist Church, drove down South Main Street, and then turn about and proceed to Patrick's pool room, where it stopped. Noticing that there was no license plate on the front of the car, the chief asked the man who had obtained the water from the pool room and was then filling the radiator where his driver's license was. He replied that the man in the front seat had it. Asking him for the license, Chief Tingley was requested to stick his head inside and get it. He, however, was too wise for this, and the occupant of the front seat finally handed out a driver's license. The chief compared it with the license tag on the back of the car and found that the two numbers did not correspond. He then instructed Constable Smith, who was also on the scene, to detain the men while he went for Justice Comstock. He had only reached the post office, however, when he heard Constable Smith being ordered to stick him up. Turning around, he saw his deputy with his arms raised over his head, two men holding him up, one from the front and one from the rear. The chief immediately whipped out his revolver. Our mysterious visitors were evidently making all possible speed to leave Montrose far behind. Our mysterious visitors were evidently making all possible speed to leave Montrose far behind, for when Sheriff Darrow and the other officers started out after them, sometime later, they found the car wrecked in the foot of Coles Hill near Tiffany, but no sign of the men. In making the turn, the car had evidently skidded on the slippery pavement, turned completely around and left the road. At any rate, the right rear tire of the Buick was demolished. 
The car was brought to Catlin's garage, where it has been the subject of considerable curiosity this week. In the car was found the butt end of a pull cue, and, as the same would make a most efficient billy, some claim that this points definitely the fact that the party was a group of hold-up men. So far as is known, there may have been four or five men in the car. Of course, there's no telling what other weapons they might have taken with them. The assertion that they were well supplied with revolvers is supported by the fact that Constable Smith was covered with two. There was also a bottle in the car containing a fluid which at first was thought to be nitroglycerin, but which it has since developed was probably more than, no more than an inferior brand of corn whiskey. This article is entitled, Chef Absconds But Is Soon Caught. Through the efforts of attorney C.L. Van Scotten, Charles Harris was recently paroled in the custody of D.J. Donovan until the April session of court, sentence against him having been suspended until that time. Harris was arrested on the charge of stealing an overcoat, but due to his army record, attorney Van Scotten interceded on his behalf and secured him employment at Hotel Donovan as chef, in which capacity he served during the World War and in which he is very capable. It seems, however, that Harris was not the sort to appreciate such kindness. Yesterday afternoon, he struck Mr. Donovan for his pay, secured it, gathered onto himself several articles of clothing not his own, and took the 340 trolley for Sutton. He was soon missed at the hotel, however, and when it became known that he had taken the 340 trolley, the local authorities immediately notified the Scranton police to be on the lookout for him. As a result, Harris was arrested at Providence Square. We understand that he is to be brought to Montrose this morning, where he will once more find shelter in the county jail. An impressive military funeral was held at Middletown on Monday morning when the body of Dennis F. O'Connell was laid to rest in the Flynn Church Cemetery at that place. The deceased body, upon arrival at Hoboken, was brought to Montrose on Friday afternoon last, accompanied by a regular Army sergeant detailed for that purpose. The deceased was born in Philadelphia in 1895 and prior to entering his country service had lived with Martin Golden at Middletown for a period of 14 years. That the young man was held in high esteem by the people of Middletown and vicinity is attested by the fact that the church was crowded to its capacity on Monday morning. Dennis F. O'Connell died in France February 25, 1919. Ex-servicemen from the surrounding community acted as pallbearers. Ten members of the local Gardner-Warner Post of the American Legion attended the funeral in uniform, showing their devotion and respect for the memory of a dead comrade. The Montrose School Board has had considerable correspondence of late with the Department of Public Instruction in Harrisburg with regard to the school building, which no longer conforms to law in seating capacity, light, and airspace. It has been intimated that the building may have to be condemned unless definite action is taken in the near future by the board to correct the conditions complained of. Last spring, the board engaged a school architect from Binghamton to draw up a plan to remodel the present building. It was thought it might be possible to get the required room space 
at the least cost by adding an extra story on the east end and by building an L at the back. After the plan had been submitted to the department, a committee of the board was called to Harrisburg for the pur purpose of considering the proposed building program in detail with the school architect of the state. The department sent a representative here recently to make a survey of the situation upon which a recommendation will soon be made to the board. According to views expressed so far, it is likely that the new plan will leave the old building as it is, except for the changes which are necessary in regard to light and that a new building unit will be urged. A project like this for Montrose would involve the selection of a building site. This would have to be as centrally located as possible and large enough to afford a playground of 30 square feet per child as required by law. The school board feels it is facing a difficult situation, a situation which concerns every parent and taxpayer of the borough, and it is desirous of solving the problem in the most economical way, consistent with the best interests of the children and of all concerned. The rumor was afloat the first of the week that the local Western Union Telegraph office may be discontinued here during the winter months and leave us only with the service during the summer, owing to the small amount of business going through this office. Should the change be made, it would necessitate phoning messages to Binghamton office, which would seem a very, very unsatisfactory outlet. This would seem a proper matter for the Chamber of Commerce to take up and see if in some way the office cannot be held in Montrose. Forest City reports that the anthracite coal miners will ask for a flat increase of 20% and an increase of $1 per day for all daymen. The decision was reached at the Tri-District Convention held just last week in Shimokan. The demand was the second of 19 formulated into the report of the Wage Scale Committee and caused much debate. The third demand was the most enthusiastically of the three adopted. It asked for a uniform wage scale so that the various occupations of like character would command the same pay, that the contract period should not exceed two years, and that the making of individual agreements and contracts be prohibited was the gist of the first demand, which was readily adopted by the delegates. Included in the demand is a recommendation for the suspension of all work on April 1st if a satisfactory wage contract is not gained by the operators by that time. The present agreement expires March 31st next. There's good news for Susquehanna. The entire plant of the Erie Railroad Company at Susquehanna has been leased to the Susquehanna Shops Company and unless something unforeseen happens, the back shop, closed since November 19th, will open. All men who desire to work are obliged to sign up, and there will be many changes in all departments. The new company is headed by Robert W. Bull and John F. Nugent of Hornell as managers and executive offices, and they have been active in the Hornell Construction Company at that city. One of these gentlemen will be in Susquehanna constantly, directing the business, which, with the exception of the main operating department and stores department, has all been taken over by the new company from Erie Control. Notices were posted yesterday at the Clinton Colliery that there would be no work the balance of the week. The company contends that the shortage of orders is the cause of the layoff. It is said that there is to be a three-day week until the outlook is more favorable. It was, of course, winter in Susquehanna County, and a caterpillar snowplow and drift breaker, which fought its way from Binghamton to Montrose last week, 
created considerable interest in town. Had it not been for this unique machine, it is hard to tell how long it would have been before the Montrose to Binghamton Road would have been open. Its operation was directed by D.J. Dory, the enterprising bus line man who worked untiringly to open the road. Surely Mr. Dory deserves praise from all of us and for those who directly benefited from his efforts. It seems that he deserves and is entitled to accept more than just mere praise. In Forest City, conductor John Farrell's beaming countenance never looked so good as it did Monday when the first streetcar made its appearance since Wednesday of last week. The cars come as far as McCormick Brothers store. The cost of opening the tracks on Upper Main Street is too much for the company to stand and will have to wait the action of the elements in ridding the tracks of snow and ice. There is a notice to coasters and skaters. Coasters and skaters are prohibited on sidewalks and streets in Forest City, except on Grand Ave from Main Street but must not interfere with traffic on said avenue and not later than 10 p.m. The chief of police is instructed to prosecute all who will not obey the above ruling. All property owners must also keep their sidewalks free from snow. And a notice from Lennox, the supervisors of Lennox Township will pay no bills for shoveling snow. The Lackawanna Trail is now open from New Milford into Scranton announced by Harry E. Harkness, secretary of the Binghamton Automobile Club. The road from Binghamton to New Milford and to Montrose has been open several weeks and has been greatly enjoyed. The recent heavy snow has caused some inconvenience, but trips by auto trucks have been made every day this winter with one possible exception. For nearly 2,000 feet between Foster and Nicholson, there is only a single track in the snow and the driving is dangerous, Mr. Harkness said. If care is not taken, at this point, the automobile might accidentally slip off the trail and fall into the old Lackawanna Railroad tracks. The road from Binghamton to New York is now open for travel, although the driving is dangerous, and in most cases, there's only a single track. Now we'll take a look at some of the more personal and social items in January 1922. Two splendid plays were presented under the auspices of St. Paul's Guild at Colonial Hall in Montrose, last Monday and Tuesday evenings. Tuesday night's play, Oklahoma Folks, was perhaps the more successful and the more happily received, but this was only natural from the very nature of the plays themselves. Monday's offering, The Dust of the Earth, while an interesting drama, did not seem to be a type of play especially well adapted to a home talent cast. By this, however, we do not mean to say that the cast of The Dust of the Earth did not do well, for all things considered, they did remarkably well and are deserving of much credit. Probably the happiest feature of the presentation was Miss Clara Searle's realistic portrayal of Miss Arabella. When Earl Titman, playing the part of a rude country boy, collided with Miss Arabella knocking her down, the house became convulsed with laughter. So actual did the horrible and shocking occurrence seem. To Miss Alice Hines, who played the lead, that of the dust of the earth, goes a great deal of credit for her depiction of a difficult part. Jack McKeague, who was supposed to be an elderly man, delighted the audience by his clever handling of the part and his true-to-nature touches of the infirmity of age. Before going any further, let us take pause to heartily congratulate and recommend Mr. McCullough, for it was he who planned, directed, and coached the play, a work in which he is so capable. 
And even that is not saying it all. He did everything. How hard he worked, the people of Montrose will never know or fully appreciate. We do not feel that we can say enough for his public spiritedness in this connection. Surely St. Paul's Guild is fortunate to be able to command the service of so willing a worker. And also at Colonial Hall, music lovers of Montrose and Vicinity were given a rare treat when the Orpheus Four, the second number on our Community Lyceum course, excellently presented a varied program of quartet and solo selections. As large a crowd as we have seen at Colonial Hall in many a day attended the concert, as if generous applause may be taken as an indication, there were none among the large assemblage who did not thoroughly enjoy the entertainment that was set for them. When the handicaps under which the entertainments labored were considered, the excellence of their performance seemed all the more remarkable. For, as we understand it, cold shivers running up and down one's back were not overly conducive to good singing, nor very apt to make one want to do their best. An out-of-towner who was in attendance at the concert and who chanced to go backstage is reported to have asked if they were planning to use the stage for an indoor ice rink for the remainder of the week. And as for the other big handicaps, Colonial Hall's age-worn piano. The same has been a disgrace and a black eye to the community for so long that out of respect for age, we hesitate to mention it all. It might be interesting, however, for our readers to know that before they would consent to use it, two members of the quartet practically overhauled the piano, restoring two keys to use that before they started work would not function at all. And even then, the handicap was very real and very evident. Colonial Hall may be hard to heat, but Monday night was not so cold and we saw no reason why the stage could not have been warm. And as for the piano, we remember the days when it was the custom to move one in on the occasion of the coming of such an organization as the Orpheus Four. A concert of more than usual merit was held in St. Anthony's Church Hall Sunday evening at Four City. Notwithstanding the unpleasant weather, the auditorium was filled to its capacity. Messalina Narnicate, a noted soprano of Boston, Massachusetts, Miss per Petronella Arlencut, a mezzo-soprano of Pittston, and Domas Antonidis, tenor also of Pittston, with Leonidas Versatis, as pianists gave their hearers a program such as not been heard in some time. The choir of St. Anthony's Church assisted and rendered several selections and surprised the audience by the excellence of their chorus singing. In Forest City, the Knickerbocker Club held a dance in the Borough Hall on Monday evening. It was pronounced a social success. Music was furnished by Gig Gregory's Orchestra, direct from Philadelphia. They had time, motion, and pep. Vincent Connolly and Hyman Joseph were the committee in charge. Over in the Ideal Theater on Saturday, Alice Lake is in The Greater Claim, a drama that shows that in a crisis it is grit and not a family tree that counts. Also the serial, episode number 12, A Fighting Fate, starring William Duncan and Edith Johnson. On Tuesday, Brian Washburn in The Road to London. You have read of this famous play in all the leading magazines, and now it's your chance to see it. An extraordinary production. Also the serial, episode number 12, The Avenging Arrow, 
starring Ruth Rowland, a thrilling serial dealing with the hatred between two Spanish families. All of these shows are just 17 cents and 22 cents. You've certainly heard the phrase, don't do this at home, kids. Well, there were quite a number of ads in the papers of 1922 that are quite interesting. And I will suggest that you please do not necessarily do these things at home. An ad from H.A. Patrick's says, does he smoke? If he does, and most men do, there's nothing he would appreciate quite so much as a good box of cigars or cigarettes. Get them at the headquarters for all smoker supplies, H.H. Patrick, pool, bowling, cigars, and cigarettes. Red pepper stops rheumatism pain. Rub it on yourself on stiff joints and muscles and rheumatism, lumbago, and pain vanish. Try it and see. Bad breath? Do you want your friends to avoid you? They will certainly do so when your breath is bad. There's no excuse for anyone having a bad breath. It is caused by disorders of the stomach, which can be corrected by taking Chamberlain's tablets. Many have been permanently killed of stomach troubles by the use of these tablets after years of suffering. Price is just 25 cents per bottle. Making bad things worse. Winter, as if it were an evil spirit, seems to take delight in making bad things worse. Rheumatism twists harder, twinges sharper, catarrh becomes more annoying, and many symptoms of scrofula were developed and aggravated. These are common diseases, and no wonder that more people don't get rid of them. Hood's sarsaparilla has been very successful in the treatment of these complaints. It is easily obtained, and there is abundant testimony that its effects are radical and permanent. In cases where a laxative or cathartic are needed, it is well to supplement Hood's sarsaparilla with Hood's pills, which are gentle, thorough, and effective. A.B. Burns in Montrose takes pleasure in announcing that we have been selected as one of the distributors in the state of Vimogen Genuine Yeast Vitamin Tablets. It is not our customary to recommend articles unless they are worthy and reliable. It is not our habit to guarantee a product unless we can do some with unequivocal sincerity or to say your money back if you want it, unless we mean it. We urge our friends and patrons to try Vimogen. It is scientifically cultured, highly concentrated yeast product, and it contains all three of the vitamins necessary to life and health which build bodily vigor, strong muscles, and steady nerves, firm, well-rounded flesh, energy, and vitality. The remarkable success with Vimogen has met is due chiefly to the presence of the three vitamins. Baker's yeast, widely used for similar purposes, contains but one. Some fruit, food products contain two when fresh or cooked. Insist on vitamin yeast. Get into the habit of drinking hot water before breakfast. Millions of folks bathe internally now instead of loading their system with drugs. What's an inside bath, you say? Well, it's guaranteed to perform miracles if you could believe these hot water enthusiasts. 
just as soap and hot water act on the skin, cleansing, sweetening, and refreshing, so limestone phosphate for hot water act on the stomach, liver, kidneys, and bowels. It is vastly more important to bathe on the inside than on the outside. Try sulfur on an eczema skin. It costs little and overcomes troubles almost overnight. Any breaking out of the skin, even fiery, itching eczema can be quickly overcome by applying menthosulfur, declares a noted skin specialist. Because of its germ-destroying properties, this sulfur preparation instantly brings ease from skin irritation, soothes and heals, heals the eczema right up, and leaves the skin clear and smooth. It never fails to relieve the torment without delay. Sufferers from skin trouble should obtain a small jar of menthol sulfur from any good druggist and use it like cold cream. Others are relieved. Why not you? Catarrh does harm. Get rid of it. Catarrh of the nose or throat, when it becomes chronic, weakens the delicate lung tissue, deranges the digestive organs, and may lead to consumption. It impairs the taste, smell, and hearing and affects the voice. It is a constitutional disease and requires a constitutional remedy. Again, take hood sarsaparilla, which by purifying the blood removes the cause of the disease and gives permanent relief. This alternative to tonic medicine has proven entirely satisfactory to thousands of families for generations. Again, friends, there's no medical advice mentioned here from us. Just a few words about what happened in days of yore. Don't try this at home. Well, you may be asking what was new in agriculture in January 1922. The second annual Farm and Home Product Show was held in the community building, Dimmick, on January 18th and provided another interesting and instructive event. It was held under the supervision of Professor J.A. Martin, the vocational teacher of Dimmick High School, assisted by Mrs. Alma Williams and their committees. This show was a community fair and met with the heartiest cooperation on the part of all the Dimmick Township folks. It also proves what a wide awake rural community can do to promote community spirit to say nothing of the agricultural benefits derived at the same time. There were splendid exhibits of farm animals, canned goods, baking, old relics, flowers, fancy work, and some fine exhibits from the Dimmick and Tyler schools comprising 735 different articles in all. Only a few kinds of vegetables were shown, as Mr. Martin had particularly emphasized the importance of bringing corn and potato exhibits chiefly, as from a practical point of view, these two products are of more interest to Susquehanna County farmers. There were 185 articles of fancy work displayed and 65 old relics. Both of these exhibits created much interest. Amongst the old relics were a tea kettle and some silverware that 
came over with the pilgrims. One very old quilt was made of 4,785 different pieces. An old coverlet of blue and white hand-woven wool that was made in Jefferson County, New York in 1840 was a sight to be remembered on account of its unusual and intricate patterns. How many farms do you think Susquehanna County has? In Susquehanna County in 1920, all farms classified by size were as follows. Under three acres, three. Three to nine acres, 97. 10 to 19 acres, 110. 20 to 49 acres, 279. 50 to 99 acres, 138. 100 to 174 acres, 1,374. 175 to 259 acres, 49. 260 to 499 acres, 209. 500 to 999 acres, 25. 1,000 and over, two. This shows that there are more farms in the county of 100 to 170 acres than any other classification. The value of farm buildings in 1920 totaled $7.8 million. The value of farm implements and machineries in 1920 was $2.9 million. The livestock on farms in 1920 was valued at $6.3 million. There is a notice of strays in the Bridgewater area in case you're missing any cows. Found on the premises of B.B. Freeman in Bridgewater Township, one gray Jersey cow, solid fawn color, without horns, also one spotted red and white cow with crumpled horns. The owner or owners of same are hereby notified to appear and prove property and pay expense of keep and costs, including the cost of this advertisement and take property, otherwise same will be disposed of according to law. That's from B.B. Freeman of Montrose, RD3. There has been a little bit of excitement in Brooklyn. Many people have been attracted to the Palmer Farm, run by the Ely Brothers this week, by the report that a cow there recently gave birth to that which closely resembled a pig. And the report proved true. The pig, however, was stillborn. W.E. Hulman of New Milford, a representative of the rural New Yorker, called at this office the first of the week to give us the information and stated that the experts employed by that paper would furnish its readers with results of investigations they were made regarding the strange occurrence. And if you were looking for a farm, there is a 285-acre dairy farm near Warren Center. There are 50 acres of woods, good buildings, 13 cows, 32 sheep, Three horses, wagons, and farm tools, hay and fodder. It's near the village and high school. There's fine fruit, foam, and RFD. Terms part down or would exchange for good city property. The price is $8,000. Also, there's 30 acres near Vestal, two miles from Endicott, if you would like to move to New York. It's a hill farm, the land lies rolling. Seven-room, one-and-a-half-story house, painted. Basement barn, unpainted. 
well and spring water, fruit for home use, fine for poultry or small fruits, the price is $2,800, including farm implements. No exchange on that. A great deal can be said about the fine people of Susquehanna County. The good old neighborly spirit still exists in this county and well, was well proven at Fairdale. Mr. Ed Haney, master of Pomona Grange, had the misfortune to have his barn burn one Saturday night. On the following Monday, he bought another. His good neighbors all lent willing hands and in a short time, as if by magic, a fine new barn was on the old site and the cows were eating ensilage from the inside of a new silo. I do, of course, have a few legitimate ads for you. The Victrola 50 is available at Cooley's in Binghamton, so you may have to drive a little, but it will be well worth it. The Victrola 50 is as easy to carry as a traveling bag. You can take this new Victrola with you wherever you go. It's small, portable, exceptionally convenient, and it is at the same time a perfect musical instrument playing any Victor record. It's an ideal traveling companion ready at a moment's notice and bringing to end no end of pleasure to your camping trip or your visit to friends. Morrison Titus Insurance Company, located over Morris's Drugstore, reminds you that bullets bootleggers, and plate glass are a bad combination. Three pieces of plate glass have been broken in Montrose in the last 30 days. Whose window will be next? Will it be yours? If it is yours, is it insured? If not, see us before it is too late. Insurance of every description from Morris and Titus. S.J. Rogers in Montrose has Wasville and Fairdale Creamery Butter, the best in fresh and salt meats, butter, eggs, lard, and oleomargarine. Cash and carry is followed exclusively. No book accounts, no deliveries. We both profit. Again, that's at S.J. Rogers on South Main Street in Montrose. Reese Brothers in Forest City has the Northwestern Safety First High Chair. There's no danger, baby can't get out. Try as it will, baby cannot climb or squirm out of the seat, nor can it slide through under the foot tray. Foot tray. The special safety strap keeps the child securely seated. But that's not all. Wide flaring legs prevent accidental tipping, and one-piece white porcelain food tray ensures a sweet and clean receptacle for baby's foods. There are many styles. You should see this exceptional baby chair. May be had in mission or period style in wood or fiber. And Davis Allen, the Rexall store on Main and Dundraff Street in Forest City, announces that the world contributes to your health. Drugs of the highest test from every country assembled in our store. They are used in compounding your prescriptions by expert licensed pharmacists. Over 9,000 prescriptions accurately compounded. Accuracy and purity are guaranteed and prices are always reasonable at Davis and Allen's Rexall store. And our news reporting would not be complete without a bit of sports. The preliminary to the Mackey 
Rheinvault match at Colonial Hall on September 29th between Charles Smith of Dimmick and Lloyd Pearson of East Rush may be rightly be said to have furnished more excitement than the main match itself. Both Smith and Pearson entered into the match in a slap-bang fashion, which furnished lots of excitement. Pearson, though outweighed nearly 20 pounds, put up a game fight and deserves a great deal of credit. Smith gained the first fall in seven minutes. Pearson, the second, in fast time of 45 seconds, and Smith, the third, in four minutes. Pearson was, especially considering Smith's weight advantage, far too willing to take chances and by his overaggressive methods soon wore himself out, being too exhausted to break Smith's headlocks, to which he continually exposed himself. We quite agree, however, that as far as an exhibition of wrestling holds and action goes, the match was a sorry affair. But when two men are pretty evenly matched, when one is afraid to take any chances and the other very few, this is very apt to be the case. Barnum was right. In order to please the people, you have to humbug them. If the bout had been framed, if there had been lots of action, and if the contestants had thrown each other about and rolled from one end of the mat to the other in frantic fashion, the public would have been satisfied, and it would still be lauding the winner, that is, the one who held the big stick and whom had been arranged to win. In basketball, Susquehanna High School basketball quintet came Friday evening and were conquered by the varsity team on the home court. Susky was not in the sitting from the start, and in the last four of eight minutes, the varsity got in their wonderful passing tactics. The score had quite run high enough, so the quintet tossed the ball at will, making the other team dizzy in locating the pellet. And the Montrose High School basketball team won her opening game of the season at Colonial Hall, when she defeated the fast West Side Independence of Binghamton by the close score of 43 to 40. Coach O'Brien and his men deserve all sorts of credit for the exciting exhibition and for the victory. The game was one of the most exciting and closest basketball contests ever played in Montrose. The team that fights gamely and squarely not only through two 20-minute halves, but also through two extra five-minute periods is a splendid organization. And that is just what the local boys did. We do not, however, mean to discredit the Binghamton team. Their play was also hard and clean and their sportsmanship excellent. I promised a genealogy tip to our patient listeners. Township tax records in the 1800s often offer a wealth of direct and indirect evidence. First, you can determine when the resident was first taxed in the township Acreage and livestock are noted, as are taxes on other employment, which gives clues to how your ancestor made his living. The poor children's list at the end of each tax year may indicate when a death of the taxpayer occurred and who his children were. I say his because, in most cases, the taxpayer listed was the male head of household. The music in this episode is Charlie Max Jig, performed by Jahail Kirkhoff. My name is Bonnie Escavage, and I'm the research assistant here at the Society. Thank you for joining us, and we look forward to seeing you around the county.